Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3 for the rest of this morning. If you're using one of those Bibles in the pew in front of you that I mentioned earlier, you'll find the section we're going to be in this morning on page number 2. should be super easy to find. Page number 2. Uh, Lindsay and I have lately been re-watching The Crown on Netflix. But you guys know about that one. It's really good. We've been re-watching it in preparation for this much-anticipated trip across the pond that we've got coming up in a few weeks. Uh, the other night, we were watching this episode in which a very, very young Queen Elizabeth receives her coronation in this elaborate, over-the-top, thousand-year-old ceremony where she gets anointed with oil by the archbishop and bowed to by everybody else in the royal family, whether they want to bow to her or not. It, this one was the first coronation to ever be broadcast on TV for the masses to get a little look into what happens in there. And a big part of the episode follows Elizabeth's uncle, who 17 years before had been King Edward VIII and decided to give it all up for love. When he was king, only for just a brief window of time, he fell in love with an American divorcee who could not become his queen because of the rules of the church and the rules of the crown. And he decided he loved her so much that he'd rather give up the crown than do without her. In this episode, that couple was living in Paris or near Paris in a nice country house on a couple acres. And during the coronation ceremony, which is going to be on TV, so now it can be watched from anywhere by anyone, they decided to throw a little watch party, kind of like a Super Bowl party here in the States, but for the coronation. They filled their, their living room with all their fancy friends, rich and well-connected, but all, pretty much clueless about what was going on in this ceremony. So Edward's job was to give the play-by-play, blow-by-blow, as this ceremony unfolded. He stands beside the TV screen and explains it all, interprets what's going on now at this point, and then here, and why this is said, why this is done, who are all these people, and why does it matter where they're seated, all that sort of stuff. And at first, he's kind of ironic about it all, and detached, and a little bit above it. At first, he gives off the impression that he's glad he chose love over all this foolishness, by the end, though, you can tell it's getting to him. By the end, he's, he's looking at that screen and seeing all that he once had. He's seeing all the things he'd given up. He's remembering what it was like to have that crown on his head. You know, from where I'm sitting, this guy's still got it pretty good. I mean, he's living on a, on a really nice estate, a, a, a nice house in A great city. He's got a whole staff of servants to do his bidding. He's got an annual allowance to live on. He looks like he's got it great. But compared to the house he used to have? I mean, it's like comparing my house to the Biltmore. I love my house. It's not the Biltmore. And he had like six or eight Biltmores all over the country. He had had these palaces he could go to. He has a lot to live on. But but then he he had the coffers of the entire kingdom. All the wealth of the realm. Now he's got servants working for him. Then he had his own prime minister. By the end of the episode, he's standing alone out on his front lawn as the sun goes down and all his friends have gone home playing his bagpipe with tears streaming down his face. There's still a lot to like about that man's life, but he can't not know At one time, he was king. 
He can't not see things now, even his really cushy life, in light of what he had back then. And being human is a lot like that. Part of the greatness of what it means to be human is the fact that we know no matter how good things are in this world and in our lives, they could be, let me say it even stronger, they should be a whole lot better. Bluebirds don't line up for therapy. Humans know they have problems. Gazelles don't shake their little paws or whatever, hooves, at the sky and rage about injustice even as the cheetah bears down on them. Humans do that. When we look around at our world, we should see the beauty and the goodness and the light all around us. By all means, we should know something of the joy and the gratitude and even the awe that should come with just the sheer fact that we're alive and get to live here. By all means. But if we're paying attention like we ought to, we also can't help complaining. We can't be okay with what's happening in Ukraine right now. We can't be okay with the fact that something like one in six women have been sexually abused. We can't be okay with the fact that nearly half of us will get cancer at some point in our lifetimes. And I could go on, adding to this list. We look around at the world and we know in our bones, at a level we can't possibly escape, things could be, things should be so much better than they are. And the fact that we know that is a sign that at one point they were a lot better. Genesis helps us to be honest about the whole range of human experience. Not just to admit that it's true that things are broken, but to understand how they got broken and why they're broken in the way we are, in the way that they are. Last time we were in Genesis, a couple weeks back, we looked at where sin comes from. Today, coming over some of the same terrain in the same chapter, we're going to look at at what sin leads to, at what happens when humans don't accept that God is God, when we don't accept that God is good, and when we decide instead that we'll be better off on our own. What happens when humans made in God's image decide not to live as if God is God, as if God is good, And as if, and choose to live, as if we'd be better off on our own. If you found the text, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. I'm going to begin in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3 and read all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 24. This is the word of the Lord. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For from it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. You may be seated. What happens when humans don't accept that God is God is that human relationships are broken through sin. That's big point number one and it will be most of our time together this morning. Human relationships are broken through sin. We've spent the last three months almost examining the first two chapters of Genesis. And those first two chapters describe the world as it was supposed to be. The world as God designed it, a good and beautiful world of peace and perfect harmony where everything in the world had a place assigned by God. Everything knew what its place was. Everything accepted its place. And therefore, everything fit perfectly along everything else. That's the kind of harmony that the Bible has in mind when the Bible uses the word peace. And in the beginning, that peace was perfect. Then six verses into Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve reject their place in the universe that God designed. And most of the chapter, as we've just read, unfolds the devastating effects of their decision. The tragedy of what it means to be human on this side of the fall is that all of us are stuck in a web of broken relationships. I want to point out three levels of broken relationships that come out of Genesis chapter 3. I'm just going to describe them as Genesis describes them, and in a way, hopefully, that you'll be able to recognize in your own life. Because of sin, our relationship with the world is broken. That's number one. Our relationship with the world around us is broken. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, you see the world that's very good. That's how God described it. It was designed step by step, not just to glorify God, but to prepare this perfect habitat for those who would bear his image. You guys know how first-time parents tend to geek out over the nursery for their first kid? You know, second and third kids just deal with whatever's left. The walls are all beat up. There's holes in the walls. The books are all ripped and torn, and the clothes all have holes in them. But that first kid, they pour over the color of the wall and what font will be used for the name that goes over the perfectly chosen crib that fits all the safety requirements. That, 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 that nursery is designed to the T as a habitat for that precious baby still to come. That, that's what Genesis 1 reads to me like. It's like God forming this nursery for a beloved child that he is going to bring in and then place right here in this perfect habitat designed just for them. In the beginning, humans and the world fit like hand and glove. But now look at what's happened. And the center of this chapter is this long poetic speech from God about what's going to happen now that Adam and Eve chose to disobey him. And in the middle of it, what we see is that they're still supposed to do the same things they were originally meant to do. The same things he commanded them to do when the habitat was perfect. When the whole system was working just like it was supposed to. They're still supposed to be fruitful and multiply. They're supposed to to bring new children into the world. They're supposed to cultivate the earth that God had given them to bring good and life and flourishing out of it. They're still supposed to do all that. But now everything they do is going to be full of pain and toil and stress. The woman will still bear children just as she was intended to. But now, verse 16, it will come with terrible pain. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. It's still an unbelievably happy privilege to bear a child. But receiving that gift is painful, and at worst even lethal to the mother. And under the best of circumstances, the parenting that comes with having children is stressful too. It's rewarding, but far from peaceful often. Similarly, and the man is supposed to work the earth still, just like God originally intended. He's supposed to to, to work the ground, to bring good and life out of it in God's name. But now that work will be painful too. Verses 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it'll bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And these two curses over childbearing and over the work of the ground and the production of food, they're just the tip of the iceberg. They're just representatives of a pain that spreads through all of our interactions in this world. The rest of the Bible and our own experience both work together to show that this this brokenness in our relationship to the world, it touches everything. What once was peaceful is now full of struggle. We, uh, We spent last weekend resetting flower beds in our front yard. For now, there is a lovely carpet of black mulch. It smells terrible out there. But from a distance, it looks beautiful. It's unblemished, except by the green that we put there, the plants that we wanted exactly where they are as they are. But soon enough, you know what's going to happen. By summertime, those beautiful, perfect beds are going to be covered with nasty weeds that we're going to pull up over and over 
until we get too frustrated and just start whacking them down. And we'll fight them and lose to them until winter comes to kill them off for the year. How beautiful are all these flowering trees around us, huh? The cherries and the red buds and the dogwoods are all out. It's gorgeous to drive past and look at all these flowers. But how many of you right now can't even breathe because of what your allergies are doing in response to all that pollen? We crave meaningful work to do. We do still deep down like to work, but work is hard now. And, and what's hard about it is not just that it doesn't come easy, but that things don't often come out the way you hope that they will. I mean, it, it's futile so often. And sometimes you have to work more than you want to, or you have to, to choose more work than you probably should. Our work is still good, just like God designed, but that relationship is broken. And, and the same ocean we go sit in front of in the summertime to look for a little bit of peace in our lives produces tsunamis now. And hurricanes and deadly storm surges. I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens in the world stems back to a specific sin that somebody did to bring it on. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying what I think Genesis makes clear here in chapter 3. Behind every trace of brokenness in our relationship to the world is the reality, the problem of human sin. Somebody... Somebody compared our situation to a finely tuned clock. You think about the the world of Genesis 1 and 2 where everything was just as it was supposed to be as a clock that's working right, where it's got all kinds of axles and gears and they all fit and click into place just perfectly. And when everything's going good, it all works. It all just does its own thing. That That was the world in Genesis 1 and 2. But imagine one of these gears decides it's not happy in its place. Imagine one of the gears in that perfectly designed clock decides it, it'd rather be somewhere else. Imagine that, that, that gear wants a bigger roll on a different axle and makes a jump up out of its place, grasping for more, only to fall down lower into the gears below. What would happen then? What would happen then is that that, that clock would still struggle to work. Those gears would still try to turn. But something would be trapped in them. Something would be caught. There'd be a grinding. There'd be noise. There'd be, depending on how big it was, smoke and clicking and all the rest. It, would, it wouldn't work. It'd be, it would still be trying. But it'd be laboring now. It'd be, as, as Romans 8 describes our world, it would be groaning under the brokenness that was brought to it. And Genesis describes humans as that one gear in this perfectly designed clock that was given the, the ability to grasp for a different place. And that when we did that, we broke the whole thing. Our relationship to the world has been broken by sin. I wonder, friend, how do you account for the world as it is? And perhaps you're here and you're not yet a Christian. You're exploring what Christians think about the world. You've got your own view of how the world works. You're here to sort of see how the Bible answers some of the same questions that you've been trying to answer for yourself. I, would, I want to point you to this specific question. I want to, how do you account for the world as it is now? Um, if our world came about through random circumstantial accidents, if it's become what it is through rewarding whatever offers survival advantages and keeps progressing through that struggle to survive. If the world just came about, then the world just is what it is. 
tsunamis, tornadoes, domestic abuse, war. It's just the world being the world. But the Bible tells us what we're seeing around us isn't actually natural at all. We're seeing the results. We're seeing the fallout of a massive intervention. Sin was a massive intervention in the way that the world was meant to work. And it has ruined a good and beautiful world that still shows its beauty, but is broken all around. For Christians, our our dissatisfaction with the world as it is, it's a sign of our love for the world, for how things were, and, and a sign of our hope for how things will be again. See, if this is just the world being the world, If this is just nature and it always has been this way and it always will be this way, what hope do we have that things could ever change? And what ground do we have for really wanting change, for complaining about the world as it is anyway? Hold that thought. We're coming back in a little bit. For now, layer number two of our our broken relationships of the human relationships broken by sin is our broken relationship to one another. Our broken relationship to one another. Genesis 3 points this out too. The first chapters of Genesis, the first two, they show us that we were made to crave community with one another. It wasn't good enough when there was just one human. It was the only thing about creation that God looked at and said, no, that's not good. And part of that was because Men weren't enough. We need men and women and what they each bring to the world. They're both unique and necessary. But, but it was also because God designed humans to depend on and to enjoy one another. And, that, and at first, that, that human relationship, Adam's and Eve's relationship to one another, it was perfect. They were one flesh. That's how Genesis 2 described them. They were different, but they were so dependent on and so for one another, they may as well have just been one person. And that unity... That solidarity that they once had with each other, it is immediately broken by sin. You can see it all through Genesis chapter 3. You can see it in in verse 7 right away when they're immediately aware that they're naked. Chapter 2 had ended by making sure we knew they were naked and unashamed. They literally had nothing to hide from one another at the end of chapter 2. They were one flesh, so they may as well let it all hang out. But, But now... As soon as sin intervenes, the first thing they notice is that they're naked. And the first thing they do is cover up. We're meant to see a powerful symbolism in that. They see that that person over there is not me. And that person over there is looking at me. And that person over there may not like what they see when they see me. They feel like they've got something to hide. There's a barrier between them. You can see it when Adam blames Eve for what happened in verse 12. When God comes to him and asks him to account for what has happened, for what he did, the first thing he does is point a finger at his wife. He's not protecting and providing for her at this point. He's using her as his scapegoat. And you can see it in in what God says to the woman in verse 16. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There, There is a ton of ink spilled amongst Old Testament scholars about what exactly each one of these words means. And I won't try to resolve all of that this morning, but... But no matter how you slice it up, no matter how you end up coming down on what those words mean, the clear thing about them is that they're pointing to a power struggle. 
where there was once this one flesh unity, where, where both members in that marriage were all for one another, supporting each other mutually, sharing life at every level. Now we see two competitors in a zero-sum struggle for their own agendas in a relationship. And it's not just about their marriage. It speaks to a basic human problem. The first story outside the garden in chapter 4 is a story of envy and jealousy and murder when Cain kills his brother Abel whose sacrifice was better than his. And that chapter ends with Lamech bragging that where Cain killed one, he's killed many. And celebrating it because he thought it was such a great thing to do. The pattern's clear. Human relationships are broken by sin. From every white lie that's told to make yourself look better, to every bit of gossip told to make somebody else look worse, to every war mounted by one powerful nation against a neighbor who looks weak. Human relationships are broken by sin. When the serpent promised Adam and Eve that they would one day be like God, this isn't what they had in mind. But it's sort of what's come about. Now, they each see themselves as God. As the center of the universe. As the set of interests around which everything else revolves. And what happens when the world is populated by almost 8 billion mini-gods? Each, in their own minds, the center of the universe... Conflict is what happens. Envy is what happens. Jealousy is what happens. Broken relationships, that's what happens. And this brokenness in our relationships with one another points directly to the greatest broken relationship of all. The third layer of the brokenness in all human relationships. That's our broken relationship with God. When we talked about what it means to be made in the image of God back in Genesis chapter 1, we talked about a special relationship between God and every human. To be in his image is to have a special relationship with him that nothing else, no, no other type of creation has with him. He made humans to know him in a way that nothing else can. Everything he made is good, but, but humans he made to see his goodness, to love his goodness, to praise him for his goodness. To delight in having him for their God and knowing that he's for them. And now, right away, as soon as sin enters the world, instead of that intimacy, instead of that rest and trust, look at what's become of their relationship to God. The first effect we see is that they're hiding from him. They don't want to be seen as they are. Verse 8 says that when the Lord God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves among the trees of the garden. Their instinct now is not to run to him, but to hide from him. Before his presence was their life. Now his presence feels like death. You see how far they've fallen from the way they were made? I remember a few years back when, when our youngest was a baby, I'll never forget the way he used to greet his mother when she would walk into the room. 
when he was six or eight months old. I don't remember exactly how old. He was barely able to hold his body. You know, I'd be holding him, and he's doing his best to support himself, and he's wobbling all around. He's barely got his head up. But if he could get himself around to see his mother when she walked into the room, there was this spasm of delight, involuntary and insuppressible, unsuppressible, just course through him, and this beam that would come all over his face, and he would look at her as long as he could and then kind of turn away and bury his head down into my chest like the glory of it all was just too much to bear any longer. It was amazing. I loved that moment. And surely that was partly because this woman provides for him. She was walking around with his milk supply. He knew that. But you will never, ever convince me that that's all there was to it. It, it was her. She was his peace. She was his goodness. She was security. She was the world as it was supposed to be. And that was Adam and Eve's relationship to God at first. And now they're hiding. Because his presence is no longer their peace. It's a reminder that that peace is gone first thing they do is they hide from God. And then when they can hide no longer, when the Lord comes to them and speaks to them, then they blame shift before him. They go from hiding, don't look at me, to spin control. It's not as bad as it looks. They try to justify themselves, in other words. Now that you've seen me, let me show you that it's not what it looks like. Adam comes right out, basically blames God for everything. This woman that you gave me, you thought she was such a great idea for me to have. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And when he turns to Eve, Eve in turn blames the serpent. Not me, it was the serpent who led me to this fruit. In place of joy and peace and delight and transparency, they're now putting up fronts. They're now trying to spin what's happened to make themselves look as good as possible. And a basic part of what it means to be human now, friends, on this side of the fall, is to experience guilt like this before God. A guilt that makes you want to hide, and when you can't hide, it makes you want to spin. These strategies do nothing to help us and so, so much to hurt us. I bet you know from experience that hiding is no way to deal with what you've done wrong. It's just no way to live at all. It just traps you in yourself all alone. You'll always have to live behind a false front when you decide to try to hide. You always have to work to keep up the mask that, that if it dropped would leave you exposed. You'll live in fear of getting caught, of being seen for who you really are. You'll feel fake all along and insecure at, and, and, and even worse. Hiding is no way to live. And blame shifting won't work either. I mean, that's the natural next step when you can't hide anymore. When what you've done comes out in the open, I mean, the best case seems like it would be to pivot from hiding to convincing you that it's not what it looks like. You might argue with yourself that what you're feeling just comes from other people's expectations. It shouldn't really matter. You might argue with others that you've just been misunderstood. If they could really see you as you are, they would know you've done right. You might, you might argue that you're only acting the way you are. You only did what you did because of what others did to you first. I don't know what strategy you'll use or if you use the same ones that I have, but our ability to justify ourselves, it is crazy adaptive and it is powerful. And sometimes we might even convince ourselves and the people closest to us that we haven't done anything wrong. But 
If God is who Genesis claims that he is, then we live all of our lives before the face of the one who gave us our lives in the first place. Every sin is a denial of his godness and his goodness. Anything we do wrong is a violation against him first and foremost and matters because he matters. And you can't account for that through hiding. He sees everything. And you can't account for that through shifting blame. He knows better. The only way to account for sin against the God who sees and knows all, the only way to cope with the guilt that if you're honest, I'm sure you feel, is confession. It's the way that David models for us in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, David writes, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, you can try to cope with your guilt by denying that God is a factor in it. But all that will do is leave you to carry it all by yourself. It won't get rid of it. It will just isolate you under its burden. Only the God who set the standard that you failed to meet, the God who assigns the guilt that you feel in your bones, can relieve you of that guilt and the burden that comes with it. And friends, that is precisely what he loves to do. What I want to do to finish this message this morning with the few minutes that we've got left is show you that these human relationships broken by sin are human relationships restored by the gospel. Human relationships broken by sin, that's big point number one, that's most all of our time together. I want to leave you with the good news that the human relationships broken by sin can be human relationships restored by the gospel. And that begins with our restored relationship with God. The only possible path to healing has to begin with the most important relationship of all. And perhaps the most remarkable thing to me about Genesis chapter 3 is, is that even though it's so full of God's judgment against sin, it's also God who makes the first move to restore what's been ruined. When Adam and Eve chose to hide from him, to run away and get behind the trees and hope, hope that he wouldn't see them, God comes to find them. Did you notice that God went after them? It's in verse 8. He comes for them. And in verse 9, he speaks to them. Where are you? He says to Adam. It's not because the maker of heaven and earth didn't know where Adam was. You think he didn't know? He put them there in the first place. He knows exactly where they are. He's not looking for new information in these questions. He's looking for a conversation. He's making the first move toward a restored relationship that he's not willing to let go. And when Adam and Eve tried to justify themselves, did you know what God chose to do? He chose to cover them. Their best attempt at hiding what they've done was to sew together fig leaves. Did you see what God's response was in verse 21? God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
I want you to think about their hiding and their blame shifting as kind of a, meta, as kind of a, a symbolic attempt at, at, at fig leaves for the soul. They're trying to cover up this deep wound, this guilt, this stain that they had brought into their lives and their relationship with God. It didn't work. A better covering would be necessary. And in verse 21, God clothes them with skins made of animals he sacrificed for that purpose. That is an amazing picture of the gospel. We see in it God's amazing empathy. We see his compassion towards them in their pain. We see him providing for them just like he provided food back in chapter 1. But underneath it all, what we're meant to see here is a sign of what would come later. These first animals killed to cover sin point ahead to the animals Israel would sacrifice over and over, year after year in the temple. And those sacrifices pointed ahead to the sacrifice that was still to come where God himself would cover sin once and for all through the gift of his son Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3, 23 to 25. For all have sinned just like Adam and Eve and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by passing blame on to the woman who gave me the fruit. Are justified by blaming it on the evil one who convinced me to do it. No. They're justified by his grace. That's it, a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Do you see that? The same God who covered them over with the skins of those animals now covers them over with the blood of his son. Genesis 3.21 is a little picture of the gospel that we now see in all its beauty. There are only two ways to respond to the breakdown between ourselves and our God. You can try to cover your guilt like they use those fig leaves or you can let God cover it for you. And he will if you'll let him. And when he does, when that relationship with, with God is restored, well, our relationships with one another can be restored too. And, and later on in Romans in chapter 13, Paul talks about putting on the Lord Jesus like a garment. Just like those skins that were worn in chapter 3 of Genesis. And he uses the same image in Colossians chapter 3. But you know what? In those places, you know what he's doing? He's talking about what we wear to interact with one another. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love which binds together everything in perfect harmony. That's Colossians 3. Does that sound familiar? Do you hear the echoes of Genesis 3 and all that's gone wrong? Perfect harmony restored. What was broken, bound back together again. Compassion and kindness where, where there was exploitation before. Humility and meekness where there was self-promotion and self-protection. Forgiveness where before there was just blame batted back and forth around amongst those humans who were looking to dodge it for themselves. There is no more dog-eat-dog and every man for himself. Instead, in this vision, it's my life for yours. This is what it looks like when everybody comes into a community dressed in the same clothes, wearing Jesus above all, like a standard school attire. We all just come in 
wearing Jesus as our only hope, our only righteousness, and our only basis for new and better relationships with one another. This is what it looks like. And that's what a local church is for. That's why our covenant starts with a reminder that we have experienced grace from God and then moves into promise that now we're going to be real slow to take offense and real quick to seek reconciliation. We're going to give each other the same grace that we've known. We're going to bear each other's burdens, not try to dodge them. We're going to share our burdens, not try to hide them from one another. We're going to live as if we are all one again because we are through Jesus And that little picture that our church is meant to give the world of what a a, a unified and peaceful community is supposed to look like is really just a glimpse of what will one day stretch as far as this earth. Because one day, our relationship with the world gets restored too. I've been so encouraged by the messages Jonathan has shared with us from the end of Revelation. And this week, with, the, with, with Genesis 3 on my mind, I've been especially thinking about the one from Revelation 21. You know, the one where, where John pictures a new heaven and a new earth, and at the center of it all, a new Jerusalem coming down from God. Do you remember how he described it? He describes it as a bride adorned for her husband, clothed in new garments, coming down from God, who is the same one who first wrapped Adam and Eve in those animal skins. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, John said, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with a man. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. How beautiful is that on the backside of Genesis 3? On Genesis, of Genesis 3, which ends with this flaming sword barring the way to the garden to keep them from coming to the tree of life and to the unfiltered presence of God as they were. It is not safe for them. You can't live on like this forever. You're too miserable. Genesis 3 ends with that sword blocking the way. The Bible ends with the beautiful, peaceful, unfiltered presence of God coming back down to us in the new Jerusalem with eternal life in its wings and a coming that will make all things new. For now, we look at this picture in Revelation a little bit like King Edward watching that coronation. A little screen, a little bit fuzzy, small and distant. We read this passage while we're still in exile over across the channel from where the action is. But when we look at the promise of Revelation 21, we're looking not at what we've lost, but at what we will one day enjoy. The world will be home again for us. It will be our home again, just as it once was. And this time, this time it'll be like that forever. And so we pray that the Lord will come quickly. Will you pray with me now? Father, we thank you that you have not allowed our sin to be the final word on our relationship with you or with one another or even with this wonderful world that you made. We pray that you would help us to see our sin the way you do and to give it over to you to carry for us. 
and to look to you to redeem not just our own lives, but all things as you promised to do. We pray that you would make us faithful until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.